Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Heed is not a word we use very often. It means something that arrests your attention, that grabs a hold of you. And it is really hard to believe that we all just sang that fully being able to say that's true. <laughs> Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. When I think about American culture, the approval of man, popularity, and riches, material gain, seem to be maybe the two biggest idols. So when we say riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, I know in my heart it's hard to say I truly, fully grab that. That's true of me fully. I, I do have a lot of lingering fear of man in my life. I don't want to be famous, but I want to be liked. I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but if that's what drives you, that's trouble if you're a Christian. In riches, we all want the security that wealth provides, don't we? And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but if that's what's driving you, if that's your motive, that doesn't align with a Christian worldview. So the key is what comes after. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, God, my inheritance, now and always. You see, if you have God as the one who owns your life and gives you everything you need, if he's your inheritance, if you, you really believe that you have everything you need in God himself, well, what are earthly riches in man's empty praise? It's empty. They both are. And so that's the key to the whole thing, believing God is who he says he is and believing God is for you and has your best interests in mind and is marshalling all his divine attributes to that end. And if that's the case, your truck that you have wanted and finally got to buy by the time you were 50 cannot be your treasure. Your degrees, your accomplishments, your success, and your chosen vocation, your pretty healthy family, your success in life, whatever that may look like for you in a way that's inclined to be an idol, that is what we need to talk about this morning. It's what Martin Luther was saying when he said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Let the things of this earth, let family even, kindred, let goods and kindred go. Let it go. Nothing wrong with having goods and kindred, but if that's what you're clinging to, if that's what drives your life, you are misaligned with God's purposes for your life. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You see, the radical difference between the things of this earth which are so fleeting, so temporary, so hollow, if that's what you're basing your life on relative to who God is and that he's for you, that's what we're thinking about this morning. It's what Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred when he was 27, said when he was in college when he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
See, that mentality is what drove Jim Elliott and the other five men to be willing to give their lives to reach a people who've never heard the name of Jesus. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This morning we hear another stark word from Jesus from Luke chapter 14. If you'd go there in your Bibles, please. We are going to continue where we've been. We heard Jesus' instructions for having people over for dinner last week as Jason beautifully preached that. Jesus has been really going after religious leaders and challenging their view of life and what really matters and their view of God and of themselves and others they consider less than themselves. But now Jesus shifts the focus back to the crowd, back to the general public. And he says some stirring things to people who are following him. He wants them to know what it really means to follow him. Luke chapter 14, we'll pick it up at verse 25. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to be enlightened by the Spirit who inspired it, to be convicted where need be, and encouraged and blessed and edified and built up to deeper dependence on you and fear of you and delight in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 14, 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So, therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, Jesus is being followed by a great multitude. Lots of people. He's got a level of popularity or at least great widespread curiosity. And multitudes are coming. And Jesus once again does what he frequently does. He wants to thin out the crowd. 
because he realizes that a lot of people in these multitudes that are following him there in verse 25 are there for the wrong reasons. They're there because they don't really understand him or what it means to be a true follower of his. And so he wants to thin out the crowd. How different that is than so much of our ministry mentality, especially in the American church, which is so often driven, driven by no, numerical standards of success. You are successful if lots of people throng to you multitudes. And Jesus says, no, I'm not interested in superficial success. I'm interested in discipleship. I'm interested in what really matters and what really lasts. And I'm not going to let people come and think they're following me when they're really not. And so Jesus has a very different way of approaching these things. One author said that Jesus is not looking for spectators he's looking for recruits he's not looking for spectators he's look, look, looking for recruits and there's a really big difference you see jesus teaching tests you and tests your definition of what it really means to be a christian he's not going to let you think you're a christian if you're merely moral or if you're merely, merely religious or you look out on the outside or you know right answers to different things, or you show up because you like the entertaining aspects of even a worship service. No, Jesus is going to make sure that when you come to follow him, there's no fine print. He's not a huckster. He's not a salesman. He's not a marketer. I have a friend who's always, he's a salesman. He works on commission, and he frequently will come over and give me advice. He's not a Christian not even a theist, but, but he gives me advice on how to do my job here at Grace and at Biola better from a sales perspective. He will come over and say, Eric, I had a great idea how you can get your people to buy into your Christian thing more. Have you tried this with them? <laughs> it's great. I love it. He's a very successful businessman, and I'm always trying to help him understand that there's a radical difference between persuading people through good sales technique and inviting people to come and die. Which is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus was not some salesman. Nothing wrong with being in sales. Hear me. But he didn't use the kinds of techniques that will get people to buy things they really don't need. Which is what a lot of sales and marketing is. Jesus is not one of those fast-talking voices at the end of a commercial for drugs. That's always been amazing to me. Have you ever actually tried to listen to what they're saying after they tell you to come and use this drug to lower your blood pressure or whatever it's trying to get you to do? Like, like a third of the commercial is this guy talking so fast you can't understand a word he says. And you think, did you just say if I take that I might get blood coming out of my eyes? And, and you're like, wait, wait, can you run that back? No, it's over. He's through it all. Well, that's what you got to do if there are all these side effects that may, may, may dissuade people from buying your medication. Well, that's not how Jesus works. I'm so grateful that Jesus slows it down and he thins out the crowd. He doesn't want people following him with misunderstanding or the wrong reasons. No pragmatic, self-centered consumer mentality allowed here. Jesus wants to shock people in what he says here. He's actually trying to offend people for the right reasons and in the right way. 
He wants to change us with radical discipleship that isn't radical, if you understand the New Testament. I stopped using the word radical. It's one of the big words, maybe not as much. I think it was massive in the 90s and in 2000s. Radical, there are churches called radical, and, and radical's the thing. But if you read the New Testament, there's nothing radical about what Jesus is teaching here. It's normal. It's what discipleship is. Now, it's radical from the world's perspective, but not from Jesus' perspective. You see, what he's saying is, is God is holy and man is sinful and man needs a savior. We need someone to reconcile us to God. And Jesus is that reconciler between sinful man and a holy God. That's who he is. Otherwise, we have hell to pay. And we need God to overcome our rebellion against him. And we need a savior. And Jesus alone is that savior. And following him means giving up your life with any shred of independence from him. He becomes your life. That's who he says we have to be. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to come after me and hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life one of the sermons I came across preparing for this, the title was How to Hate Your Wife. <laughs> what in the world is Jesus doing here? He says, yeah, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus is trying to teach us that there is an absolute devotion to him he calls us to. Nothing sectioned off belonging to another Lord, another master, another God, another avenue for worship. No, he claims all we are and all we have. He claims our lives, our very lives. It's what he's up to in John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, be, will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now what we need to realize is this call to discipleship makes perfect sense if you understand who Jesus is. If you understand who Jesus is and the very verses we were reading this morning, you will realize in our corporate worship time, you'll realize that if Jesus really is fully and completely God, if he's the creator, then he really deserves all we are and all we have. Which means discipleship naturally flows from who Jesus is. So our, our first point is Jesus is looking for recruits, not spectators. Our second point is discipleship naturally flows from who Jesus is. Would, would you keep your finger in Luke 14 and just go over to Colossians Go to the right in your Bible, Colossians, head toward the end, and you'll find Colossians in the last of Paul's epistles here. Colossians 1, verse 18 puts it this way. We've already looked at this idea in our singing time together, our corporate worship. Here we go. Colossians 1, 15. Listen to who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the creator. Jesus creates so that in the creation he will be preeminent. He will be supreme. He will be first. Think of the absurdity of worshiping something he made instead of the one who made it. Think of giving our hearts, our devotion, something in us that we are or have to anything other than God himself in Christ. That kind of absolute devotion. That kind of unreserved loyalty to him. Making him preeminent is at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple. He's preeminent. And what do we mean by this? He's the head of the body of the church, beginning the firstborn from that, that, in, that in everything, everything, he might be preeminent. Here's a good definition of preeminence. It means that he's first in everything. First in importance, first in honor, first in exaltation. And the grammar of the verse indicates that Jesus is the head, the beginning, the firstborn, in order that, or for the purpose that, Jesus might be the preeminent one. Embedded in each of these glorious references to the person of Christ, head, beginning, firstborn, preeminent, is the idea that Jesus is first. He's first because of who he is. It makes perfect sense. Uh, one commentator says that this command to make Jesus first is just a very natural outworking of the first commandment of the ten. Have no other gods before me. If Jesus is more than just a great moral teacher, if Jesus is more than just an ethical rabbi or somebody who shows us the path, the way, gives us teaching, he's a really nice guy. If he's way more than that and he's God, he doesn't just deserve your ethical conduct. He deserves you. And this isn't because he's insecure, like it's this sort of thing would be among human beings so often. No, he, he, he demands preeminence because he's preeminent. He demands preeminence because he deserves preeminence. And if he were to let us think anything else but he being preeminent is the way it should be, he would be untruthful. And he wouldn't love us because he'd let us settle for cheap imitations of what the greatest thing we could imagine is. It's him and nothing else. So Jesus would have to defy his own character if he didn't call us to this sort of life. Colossians 3 puts it this way, Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you died. That's what it means to be a disciple. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is your life, is coming back. He is your life. He's not a really important part of your life. He's not something really significant you add to your life. 
He is your life, the source of it, the savior of it, the security for it, now and for eternity. Jesus is everything. He really is preeminent. And when you understand that, you realize that you die with him and he is your life. That's why I love in John 6 when people turn away from Jesus after having said some really hard things about him being the central reality of life. A lot of people leave and Jesus again is wondering if we need a little more crowd thinning. And he says to his disciples, do you want to go too? Probably be the best time to leave if you're thinking about it. And I love Peter. He says, where else are we going to go? We're betting the ranch on you, Jesus. <laughs> A lot of me doesn't like the things you're saying, and I don't understand them, but we're betting everything on you. You're, you alone have the words of eternal life. And this is discipleship. This isn't radical. This is normal if you understand the New Testament understanding of Jesus and what it means to have a relationship with him. God brings life and peace and abundant joy, but these only come through Christ. He must become our greatest joy and treasure because he's supremely excellent and worthy of all our deepest devotion and he will never fail us or disappoint us. Now, the challenge I have been feeling in preparing this message all week is this is a, a call to complete, utter, absolute, laying down your life and devotion to Jesus. And that doesn't sound like grace through faith. It sounds like what we do, but what we need to realize is we get to the point of being disciples by grace through faith, but then that begins a journey going further and further into absolute devotion that we depend on grace through faith to accomplish. It never stops being grace through faith, but it includes a growing grace through faith that leads to a growing complete devotion to Jesus. When God's grace is at work in your life, he's claiming more and more in the, of the territory of your life. That's what his grace looks like. We're more and more His. All of us is His more and more each day. And so it never stops being about grace. It's, it's kind of like marriage. Where you marry someone when you're 19 or 20 or 25 or whatever you, you get married. You marry someone and you stand in front of them and all the people in your life and the minister and you say, in sickness and in health, Till death do us part, for richer, for poor. You say, no matter what happens, I'm in. Till death. And every time I've stood here, I've stood here lots of times and lots of other places too, and I've led this dear young couple in these vows. And as they're saying them, the entire time I'm thinking, you have no idea what you're signing up for. You have no idea idea it's worth it well sometimes yeah so uh, <laughs> um but but i hope they know that when i do premarriage counseling i try to help them realize that like you think sickness and in health you think like stomach flu for five days right when you think richer or poor you think you know scraping by for a couple years until you land that job no, you have no idea what's coming. 
you have no idea what this is going to call out of you. A friend of mine was about to walk down the aisle. He was standing back at another church with his father-in-law-to-be in in just a few minutes, and he turns to his father-in-law-to-be, and he says, thank you for trusting me. (laughs) His father-in-law-to-be says, I don't trust you. (laughs) He said, I trust God. And because you've trusted him, I guess I trust you. <laughs> and, and that's what this is about. We, when we def- follow Jesus, we go in it saying, I believe you are who you say you are, so you get all of me. But very often, you don't realize what that's going to mean. But then when it becomes more costly than you ever thought, you go back and remind yourself. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, who he is and what he did. And you say, he got me into eternal life. He can get me through this. How, if he gives us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And, and so we, we don't know what we're getting into in the details, but we know who it is we're getting in, into it with, and it's Jesus. And he's first. And there are four ways this passage teaches us he's first. He's first in our relationships. He's first in our pursuit of comfort. He's first in our plans. And he's first in our possessions. Verse 26 says he's first in our relationships, even our closest relationships. Obviously, it's wonderful when you can have great relationships with the people in your life and be a faithful Christian. But a lot of times, that's not the case. Jesus says there needs to be a love for me that makes your earthly love for even those you love most seem like hatred. It's a relative thing he's talking about here. Your love for me needs to so outweigh your love for anything else that it's as if you hate those other things and even those closest to you. Now, it may be really hard for us to understand this, but you know some of you may remember this picture I showed you years ago of my great uncle Mike my great uncle Mike became a Christian in its early 20s and my great great grandfather his father disowned him kicked him out of the house tried to kill him one time when when Mike's my my great uncle Mike snuck in the house and tried to visit his mother and when he went off to the mission field His father said, I hope those cannibals you're going to work with finish the job I tried to do. Isn't that amazing? In my own family, I have someone who completely understands what Jesus is saying here. He said goodbye to his earthly family when he said yes to Jesus. Isn't amazing? I also not only have the persecuted in my family, I have the persecutor in my family. You know, I was reading recently about This guy, anybody know who this is? Charles Feinberg, yes, the first dean of Talbot Seminary that I and many of us here are on the faculty of, and uh, an amazing, brilliant man. And he was raised in a very conservative Orthodox Jewish family in a Jewish community in Pittsburgh. And in his late teens, he started to question the religion of his youth. And as he began the process and the progress toward becoming a Christian, there was a woman in his neighborhood, an African-American woman uh, named Carmen McKnight. 
and she had a husband who worked for the train company and there were there were eight times a day he did something very dangerous switching the tracks so eight times a day Carmen knew when her husband was doing something dangerous and she prayed for him and she decided when she prayed for her husband's safety she'd also pray for this young teenager in her neighborhood named Charles Feinberg that he would come to trust Jesus and they had lots of conversations she was quite an evangelist and she would challenge him to think through it, that Jesus was the Messiah. And she introduced him to a Messianic Jew named, named John Solomon, who was the, the person who helped Feinberg put these things into place. And Feinberg Hall is named after him over at Biola. But uh, this, this amazing woman in his neighborhood had this huge influence. And when he began the progress of moving toward Jesus, his family had something called a shiva which is the word seven it's seven days of mourning when someone dies and they disowned him and his father forbade anyone ever use his name in the family again It's, it's an incredible thing to look at situations where we're saying yes to Jesus means saying goodbye to your family. It's as if you hate, do you hate your family? No, not literally, but relatively speaking, your love for Jesus so outweighs any other love. I mean, we've, we come from a long legacy of martyrs, don't we? Who, as Jesus says, not only be willing to sacrifice your closest, most intimate human relationships, but your own life. That's what he says, Right? Not just your relationships, but your very life. Jesus says the world hated me, they'll hate you too. And we need courage in following Jesus, even if that puts us at odds with those closest to us. And, and this may mean some people reject you, and it may mean you put distance between yourself and other people. You know, I, I have seen so many times young people get involved who love Jesus with, with a man or a woman they start dating who doesn't love Jesus, and it's, it's a death knell to their relationship with Christ so often. And I don't care how cute he is. I don't care how cool he is. If he doesn't love Jesus, why in the world is your heart going toward him? You, you need to say no to some relationships sometimes. That's what Jesus calls us to. And he calls us to distance ourselves from our comfort. Verse 27, look what he says. I'm still in Colossians. Let me get back to our passage here. Look what he says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Everyone he's saying this to had seen people in the crucifixion process, and they all knew that when you were carrying your own cross, that was a one-way journey. You weren't coming back. And so he uses this image of saying, you need to be willing to suffer. You need to be willing to give up earthly pleasures. And there needs to be a dailiness to this because most of us aren't going to be martyred. Most of us aren't going to have dramatic displays of being disowned by our family. So what does it mean then to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus? This is a very helpful poem that is 
very accurately anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. You may have heard it before. When you're forgotten, neglected, or purposely set at naught, and you sting and hurt with insult and oversight, but your heart is still content, being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice is disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, irregularity, or annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, and spiritual insensitivity, and you can endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you're content with any food, offering, clothing, climate, house, society, solitude, or interruption, ooh, that one's tough, by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in a conversation, record your good works, long for commendation, and when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy, not question God while your needs are far greater and more desperate in circumstances, that is dying to self. When you can see, receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, with no rebellion or resentment rising in your heart, that is dying to self. When you can give yourself to that husband or wife that God has given you and sacrifice everything for them, even your life, that is dying to self. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's why Paul says the life he lives as a Christian is one of dying daily. Dying to self is not primarily done in dramatic martyrdom, but in daily devotion to Christ worked in simple, faithful, humble obedience. And so we're willing to give up our comfort, being considered cool or fashionable or smart or educated. We have to give up certain kinds of sexual fulfillment or money or an image we'd like to project or something we set our heart on that is not going to happen. We need to see that even the greatest gifts of God can easily become idols for us. And as we are in this never-ending quest for likes on social media, we need to be willing to sacrifice those as well. Because Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a dying daily, and Jesus says, your plans need to be submitted to me. I'm first in the plans you make. He says, count the cost in verses 28 through 32. He says, wouldn't someone building a tower consider whether they have the resources to do it? Wouldn't some king going off to war consider whether he has the resources to do that, whether he's going to be able to do it? Consider what you're taking on when you become a follower of Jesus. Count the cost. The tower seems to be something chosen 
to do. The war seems to be something imposed on this king, but both require careful consideration before committing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't commit easily, glibly, superficially. When the Clarks and the Brains and the Warns and we were in India, we went to see this in Delhi with Uncle Sonny. Uh, this is near a very famous mosque and that very famous minaret there. And this is the beginning of a tower that a, a leader decided to build that would dwarf the minaret and the mosque. He did it in the 1300s. And he ended up completely unable to get it beyond 80 feet. The plans were grandiose, but ever since the 1300s, it stood as a monument to this man's poor planning. This is my favorite. You, there, do you know their websites, famous unfinished buildings? <laughs> lots and lots of them in the world. Jesus knew what he was doing 2,000 years ago using this illustration. That building actually doesn't exist. That's in Moscow. That's superimposed. It's an image put where that building was supposed to exist to have the utopia for the Soviet Union. Stalin decided to build it, this building as a monument to Lenin, and there was going to be a 400-foot statue of Lenin at the top, and this was going to be bigger than, taller than the, the Empire State Building. It was going to make a statement. And as they built the foundation and started the structure with lots of iron, and they had this thing going after a major competition where architects went with the most bold uh, designs they could possibly come up with, the war started. And they ended up ravaging the beginnings of the structure and the metal that they needed for the war. And eventually, they shut it down in the late 50s, and it became the largest swimming pool in the world. To build this, they had to crush a cathedral, Christ the King Cathedral, to put this there instead. You know what stands there now? A rebuilt Christ the King Cathedral. Is that amazing? It's just incredible, these grandiose human ideas. Jesus is saying, don't get into this without considering what you're getting into. See, no fine print with Jesus. He tells us to count the cost. And so, Jesus also wants possession, wants to be Lord. He wants to be first over your possessions. Look at verse 33. And if, uh, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce all that he has. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with having things. We all have things, but how loosely do you hold on to those things? Does having those things give you your reason for worshiping God, for being faithful to God? And if you were to take those things away, would you have a begrudging, worshipful attitude? Would you have a bitterness that rises in your heart? Even the most precious things you have. I can remember being a young man. I only married two years and imagining my precious wife Donna dying. And I looked down and realized my hand had become a fist. And I knew what that was. It was a fist toward the God who took her. As if she ever belonged to me at all. Really. He is the Lord of all. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? 
And so we finally see in these last couple of verses that following Jesus, absolute devotion to him leads to fruitfulness in our lives. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Do you know salt was a massively important idea? And really until the last hundred years, salt was a massively important idea. I have a friend who is in one of the most curious, I just love Ed's curiosity. He was supposed to write a Hebrew exegesis paper when we were students in Trinity together. And instead, on his way to get resources for that paper, he saw on the stack shelf a biography of the woman who played Liesel in, in uh, Sound of Music. And he, instead of writing his paper, he read the biography of, it was called Forever Liesel. Well, he also gave me a book years ago called uh, A History of Salt. And for a lot of human history, salt, it was the preservative you desperately needed. It was a, a, a fertilizer you desperately needed. It was a taste enhancer people wanted. Wars have been fought over salt. Geographical boundary lines have been, been fought over salt. Salt's this huge thing, and Jesus says, you know, the way we get salt here in the first century, it can easily get a lot of contaminants in it to the point where it doesn't have any usefulness. And Jesus is saying, if your devotion to me is at the level I'm talking about, you're going to be tremendously useful, tremendously helpful. But if you let all the cares of this world, all the things of this world pollute your saltiness, you're just going to be discarded. You're not going to be worth anything for kingdom and eternal purposes. It's a bold warning here. Now we depend on grace and faith to have lives of fruitfulness. But that requires recognizing the huge difference between between being true disciples of Jesus, where he's first in everything, and just people who play religion. C.S. Lewis put it this way, aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Let's aim at heaven. Let's live our lives as Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada in such a way where our devotion to Christ is stunning to people who are living just for the things of earth. And let's become more and more, more salty in the process. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible grace you've given us in sending your Son to take our place. And Lord, when we begin this journey with him by faith, I pray that you would help us to be good at counting the cost and understanding that he really is Lord of all. He is first in everything. Lord, forgive us for how many different competing loves and devotions creep into our lives. Even gifts from you easily become idols that receive our devotion more than you. So would you forgive us for this? Would you help us to walk this path together as a church family in growing faithfulness and devotion and fruitfulness? For the glory of your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.